0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 4th, 2019. Shout out to my niece, Gigi, on her birthday. We're actually going to Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique for this one. On today's show, Skyliner testing. And are you ready for Disney's World of Dreams tour? Plus, Jim talks about Tomorrowland. We find some interesting things in the corporate archives. And if we have time, we talk about Zootopia. But first... Let's do a shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Scott H. and Vernon R. And longtime subscribers Nathan S., Philly B., and Eldorado87. Uh, these actually sound like members of a new musical act reforming. Jim, I
1: think. Can I be the soulful one of performing a musical act? Nothing against <laughs> Joey Fatone, but I don't want to be the fat one, okay? <laughs> You'd be the one with the goatee, has that? Okay, that works.
0: You know, Jim, if I was ever to do an Instagram shoot in Walt Disney World, Mm -hmm. you know, with the colorful cups of ice cream, the gorgeous desserts all photographed against a purple wall, preferably by good-looking people showing a lot of skin, because that's how Instagram works, Jim. I've seen the Fire Festival documentaries. I want Scott, Vernon, Nathan, Philly B, and Eldorado in that photo shoot with us. Works for me. How about uh, some time for some news, Jim? I've got some interesting stuff going on. Very much so. Very much so. (laughs) All right. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish for a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Don't forget they're doing a Disney Cruise Line cruise June 19th to the 23rd with our good friend Scott Sanders of the Disney Cruise Line blog.com. It's a four-night Bohemian cruise. On the dream with a double dip on Castaway Key. Jim, video surfaced this week showing a few test gondolas running around
1: Disney's Skyway. Have you seen this? Just in uh, the last couple of days or so. I love how the cabbages are, are, are not cabins, not cabbages. The, ca- the cabbages, the cabbages, the cabbages. Yes, you know, <laughs> that are, are draped in gray as if they're trying out a stealth bomber. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along, move along. Jim, uh, the fact that they're testing in
0: January mm-hmm. makes me think that a summer opening might be more likely than the September we've been hearing. And that leads to a question from our friend, Keenan. From what it looks like, Keenan says, everyone will have to exit the gondolas at each station, no matter where you're riding. Is this right? For example, if I'm riding from Hollywood Studios to Pop Century, I'll get in the gondola at the studios, exit at Caribbean Beach, get on another gondola at Caribbean Beach, and then exit at Pop Century.
1: Jim, is that what you're hearing? Pretty much so. And, and now as the native New Yorker, this is really not all that a surprise to you, is it? You don't get in a subway and say, you know what, let's go to Brighton Beach (laughs) today.
0: Yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever been on a a large city transportation network knows that there's some combination of planes, trains, and automobiles. There we go. That you've got to switch to, uh, you know, to get where you're going. That's not unusual. I had briefly thought, and this might have been a fever dream of mine, Jim, but I thought at one time that maybe the gondolas were going to be color-coded by destination, like red always goes to Epcot, you know, between Epcot and let's say, you know, pop century green always went to the studios or something like that. And that the color coding was how they would tell people, you know, which gondolas to get on this way you wouldn't have to get off them, right? And the the Disney cast members could route them appropriately without anyone getting off. I now think that that probably wouldn't work. And my sense is, yeah, that at each stop, you're going to have to get on and off. The big question is there should be two stops at Caribbean beach, one for the Riviera and one for Caribbean beach proper. So that means we, you'll have to get on and off twice. Ooh. I would be surprised if that was true, because then that's that one extra switch mm. seems like it's it's incrementally more hassle than it's. Yeah, worth.
1: yeah. I would argue that there's got to be probably somewhere around the old Port Royal or, or thereabouts. You know, some midway point between that and the Riviera. There's got to be a station there because it just doesn't make much sense. To put a second stop in the line there. Yeah. The whole point of this is that it moves you across property in a speedy way and gives you an attractive view that you've never had of, of Disney World before. I mean, again, remember, yeah. this is monorail circa 1971, where it wasn't just a transportation system. It was a ride.
0: Sure. It's the switching, I think, that's going to be the, the switching and the lack of air conditioning. Let's face it, They're going to be the two big things Yeah, uh, about this. There's a
1: reason why Disney doesn't make you switch buses very often. This is true. But at the same time, this is not a bus. This is supposed to be, I'm up in the sky and look over there, there's a hotel. All right. Three
0: switches on a, on a single transportation leg. Uh, would be would be a bit, but we'll we'll see what happens there. Maybe they've uh, maybe got this figured out in a way that we haven't thought of yet.
1: And just remember, Len, that each of the stations has its own design, and each of the stations will have its own little kiosk where it could sell crud. There's a reason you're getting off, Len.
0: Uh exit through the gift shop multiple times. There we go. And speaking of selling things, Jim, mm-hmm. word on the street is that Disney has a new Ultra VIP tour available for booking. It's called the World of Dreams tour. Now, you and I made a cryptic reference to this in a show in December, mm-hmm. but at the time we were uh, we were told not to say anything about it. So I had heard about it sitting next to an unnamed friend doing an unnamed thing in an unnamed place. I'm not going to talk about it. Anyway, during this unnamed thing, an unnamed CM mentioned something along the lines of, uh, for now, this is the most exclusive experience in Walt Disney World. And I interrupted the unnamed thing that was going on to say for now, right? Well, what is this for now that you're talking about?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I couldn't actually get any information out of the SEM, so I had to make some phone calls, three phone calls to be exact, uh, which is kind of a lot for us. Uh, There were NDAs involved because only a few people were working on the project, but I finally found out about it from my West Coast girl who swore me to secrecy. And Jim, I'm not saying that we have incriminating things on each other, but mutually assured destruction isn't just a geopolitical (laughs) concept. It can form the basis for healthy adult relationships too. Let's just leave it at that.
1: (laughs) okay. Wow. (laughs)
0: Anyway, Mm -hmm. here are the details of this new uh, World of Dreams tour. So $12,000 for the first day, Mm -hmm. up to six guests, anywhere from uh, one to 12 hours. It is fully customizable. It's $10,000 for additional days. Obviously, you can do whatever you want regarding VIP access to the lines. You get food. You get special places to stand during the nighttime fireworks. You get backstage transportation, all that kind of stuff. You also get two VIP tour guides with this. But here's the interesting thing. You wouldn't buy this tour just to not wait in line, right? That's what the regular sort of VIP tours are. When this tour was actually explained to me is that it wasn't actually a tour in the traditional sense. It's more like, here's a customized day where you can do whatever you've always wanted to do in Walt Disney World within reason. And I say within reason because those words were specifically emphasized to me. And by the way, I said at the time, that a $12,000 tour that lets me do anything within reason is exactly what I'm looking for in an activity. It's expensive, it's exclusive, and there are only vague guidelines about what constitutes acceptable behavior. I mean, this appeals to me, right? Mm-hmm. But what I heard on the activities were you know, not getting in front of the line. It was more like you want to wash, feed, and groom or train the animals at the animal kingdom. Yes, you can do that. You want to watch a dinner service come together inside one of the signature restaurants before it's served. Yes, you can do that. You want to go on stage at the attractions before or after normal park operating hours? Yes, you can do that. You want to be a jungle cruise skipper on your own boat? Yes, you can do that. The only exemptions I heard at the time Mm -hmm. like regarding within reason, the only thing that I heard that you couldn't do was two things. One, you couldn't be a character, so like you can't be Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. And two, you can't operate machinery, so you can't drive the monorail, you can't drive a jungle boat, but you can still do the narration. I'm sure that Disney's going to add restrictions to that list as people like me start booking these things. Mm-hmm. But, but the way it was also explained to me was like if you wanted your your 12 hours to be overnight and you wanted to stay in the Cinderella Castle suite, you could totally do that too. I think the stuff that we're seeing is um, you get a tour of the castle suite. That's different than what I heard. We'll see if uh, what Disney. Uh, resolves around that. But uh, but Jim, what do you think of this?
1: I'm intrigued by being able to watch the new version of Illuminations from the Japanese Pagoda. You and your group in what for everybody else is a decorative element, but you're watching the show from there. I mean, I'm just wondering are there $12,000 worth of special perks that are genuinely worth doing on a a Disney World vacation? I mean, I guess you think about it's a group of six and it's a a once-in-a-lifetime thing and so that's what $2000 a person for a once in a lifetime experience. Okay, I get it. Yeah. I'm going to assume this is like a menu at a Chinese restaurant. There's got to be 40 or 50 different things on the menu so you see,
0: can See that that's where I think it's different. Mm-hmm. I think this is negotiable. Okay. So the the way it was explained to me was like pick something you want to do in Walt Disney World that you've always wanted to do and we'll put together the people and the time mm-hmm. to get it done. Again, it's not about riding rides because you can do that for no, far no, no. That's
1: it exactly. than the twelve
0: grand. So the thing that, that I specifically asked about was like hypothetically because mm-hmm. you know I'm a I'm a geek right. Yep. Hypothetically, mm-hmm. if I wanted to get an Imagineer and a data scientist together, and have them walk me through the park and tell me what how they view the park in their own eyes or from their job roles, could they do that? And I wasn't told no, hmm. which again I think this is all negotiable. Okay. That would be the kind of thing that I would be interested in, or. Like I said, you know, I want to walk through the dining room scene of the haunted mansion after the park is closed and actually see how the effects work. Those are interesting things, right? And they're not part of any other tour. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you can see the Utilidors and some other tours and things like that. But the things that aren't normally offered on the standard menu, if you will, I think that's where the negotiation aspect of this comes in. And I've heard from from people, by the way, when this came out, I heard from uh, from a couple of people mm-hmm. who had done similar things in the past. So apparently, and I didn't know this actually, this is this is something that, uh, that, that came out. Apparently you've been able to make these requests for a while to Disney. Like you could say, you know, you could just, if you knew the right person to call, mm-hmm. you could call up Disney and say, how much would it cost for me to walk through mm-hmm. the haunted mansion dining room scene after park hours? And then throw out a price. And if you were happy with it, you would do it. This is just the formalization of that.
1: Well, it's my understanding that the roots is sort of laid in a log of the concierges at, I want to say it was the contemporary and the grand flow that they took over the five years of, you know, requests from, quote unquote, the whales, the, the big spenders who repeatedly returned to Walt Disney World. And it was those experiences that that had come up two and three different times at least that sort of became the master list and that coupled with the notion that you've got millennials who they want to experience the park differently. They want Mm to be able to record sitting at the table backstage at the Haunted Mansion. But to have the selfie to show I was there. Yep. So this Venn diagram came together of what millennials want would be able to document their trip to Walt Disney World coupled with the whales, and they arrived at this price point because of the very thing you were talking about. It was sort of like going into the Haunted Mansion after hours. It's like, yes, you can arrange for that, but you also, for example, you have to contact the third shift and go, hey, we need a window of time, 15 minutes to a half hour to bring these folks in, and what day can we do that? Are you doing any repairs or or that sort of thing? This will allow them to sort of formalize this thing that they've been doing informally and kind of piecemeal over the past five years or so.
0: Yeah. In that respect, the 12K price tag, Mm -hmm. $2,000 per person, obviously there's a gratuity added onto that. Let's just assume it's going to be 15K. Mm -hmm. So $2,500 a person. Mm -hmm. That's in the ballpark. I mean, let me stop stop there and say that's more than the vast majority of Americans spend on vacations annually, Mm -hmm. right? So so it's a lot of money. But for the people who do these sorts of things, Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be out of line on a per person basis. With the kinds of experiences that, uh, or the prices of other similar experiences.
1: That's it exactly. If you think about the wild safari that's done at Animal Kingdom, that's now up to what two hundred dollars a person per day.
0: Yeah, but again, vastly, vastly different. I mean, I'm talking about like. What is the experience of being like, you know, playing with the New York Yankees for a day or something? Oh no, like no, no, that. no, 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 That's, no! I
1: get that. If you were to start, say, building a pile of these over the course of a vacation, you could yeah. get to the oh, that twenty five hundred dollars. Oh, Oh, twenty
0: five hundred, yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah pretty pretty so, quickly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not saying no to it. The original price that I heard was actually more expensive than this. So maybe maybe twelve k sounds like a, a bargain. I'm uh, I'm currently recruiting uh, five other people mm-hmm. to come up with the twelve k. I can't decide. So I'm sort of torn about what I would do with my time. Mm-hmm. I really would like to walk through the park with an Imagineer and a data scientist and have them explain to me what they see. I, I really think that's my, my appealing thing. On the other hand, you know, there's that cast member who knew about the tour ahead of time and didn't tell me about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I've threatened him <laughs> by saying that uh, my, the thing I'm going to do is mow the lawn in August and he's coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to request him? We're going to mow the lawn in August? <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, see, oh, that yeah, is if you cruel, don't tell me then. Okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I got. I, I don't know where that vengeance streak comes from, but it's, uh, you know, anyway. Spend 12 hours in one of those booths collecting money from people going into the parking lots, all right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just like, oh, not going to cooperate. Oh, well, guess what? <laughs> 12 hours of people going, how much? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I didn't think of that. That might even be better. Yep. <laughs> All right, Jim. And uh, in other news, Munisaberg opened
1: at the studios. This is uh, this is your news item. What's uh, what's going on? We saw uh, Pixar Place stayed open right up until Toy Story Land finally opened at Disney's Hollywood Studios, and then about a week to ten days later, we saw the the Pixar Place sign pulled down, and we saw one of those amazing rolling hedges come in. For a time, there was discussion about changing this area into back of house for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. In fact, I remember being shown one site plan for Black Spire Outpost where the notion was that this was where the makeups, and remember, there's the whole conceit of every store that's in Batuu, there's a family that runs it. So, you know, they all have to have the same makeup treatment. They all have to wear clothes that are similar. So, you know, there had to be, you know, an on site place where you'd go for makeup and that sort of thing. However, mm-hmm. as, as the plan mutated, they began to realize that strictly for operations, there was going to have to be a perimeter road that basically cut between Toy Story Land all the way over to Grand Avenue oh okay it couldn't be behind because evidently at that point they're like oh crap we're building the hotel
0: yeah there's a lot of things going on all right yeah so that
1: makes sense so suddenly this actually got turned back into from a, a back of house area to a front of house area and of course mm. here we have the incredibles 2 highest grossing pixar film ever was it really yeah yeah i mean it's startlingly so huh or at least for for domestic i'm gonna have to double check on how it did worldwide but you know suddenly it's like well we already have these spaces that we carved out for buzz and woody for example to do meet and greets and that sort of thing and why don't we just repurpose this area around the incredibles and that's what they've done it's a a relatively decent job given that they they only had six months or so to do this because i'm going to remember we had it closed in july of 2018 and so you've got incredible meet and greets, and all over the land you can see evidence of going, Jack Jack has changed form and blasted himself through a wall or that sort of thing. You know, there's a bird mark in the wall. So when you couple this with the fact that inside of The Walt Disney Presents, we have a meet and greet with uh, Mike and Sully from Monsters, Inc. Because you walk around the park and look at the 30th anniversary signs. Lots of Pixar characters, and and this is in a lot of ways, you know, part of the redefining of this theme park. That you know we're going to see a much heavier Pixar presence, uh, coupled with the Star Wars characters, just to give it sort of a differential between what you get at the Magic Kingdom. Which, by the way, you did see that the, the Maleficent dragon came back in this week, right? I saw it, and it breathes fire again. Ah. Okay, did we notice anything different about design of the head or that sort of thing? It,
0: it's uh, it's completely different. Different. It looks like it's gone off to the farm for the summer, had some reconstructive <laughs> uh, surgery, like a ho- any good Hollywood starlet, and come back uh, new and improved.
1: Okay, I know we talked about for a time that when they had the incident in in the park, there was some talk. About- <laughs> when they had the incident, well, face oh, it, you know, just- if there was ever a phrase that applied to this podcast, Jim. <laughs> Within ten feet of, of where this is going down is where your wonderful hot dogs are cooked. And that day, you could have walked over to the dragon I could have and done, done it yourself. Could have two things at once. Yes, there you go. We could have done it. But yeah, she's back, and with the fire effect. So that is a meeting I would have loved to set in with with Disney Legal. Because you know, you
0: know that the cast members that had to be near that mm-hmm. went through with legal. The following kind of conversation. Look, I know it's probably going to be fine, but I feel like I need to tell you mm-hmm. the last time this happened, the last time this, then we rolled out this this dragon, you know, dot, dot, dot. All right. Jim, speaking of rolling out, Shanghai Disneyland has announced a Zootopia area. I'm moderately surprised it went to, to Shanghai, but what's uh, what's
1: going on over there? You and I have been talking about the Zootopia land that's supposed to have gone into Disney's Animal Kingdom, and remember, this movie came out uh, March of uh, 2016, made a billion two. Remember, that's the threshold as far as Bob Chapek is concerned. You know, when you get that number, you're coming back into the parks in a big way. But 235 million of that was grossed in China alone. It this is the highest-grossing animated film in Chinese cinematic history.
0: Really? Yeah. It's the highest-grossing film. In Chinese cinema history? Yep, or highest grossing
1: animated film. just Animated film, okay,
0: highest grossing animated film, all right. Okay, Okay.
1: so the attitude toward how IP goes into the China Park is very different than the Stateside Park. I mean, it's all on the back of what have the Chinese people actually seen. I mean, think about it. You don't have a a Space Mountain over there. You have a Tron light cycle. Their Pirates of the Caribbean ride is all based on the Jack Sparrow character. Sure.
0: It's all it's all recent history.
1: Yeah. So again, Zootopia is a set of characters that they know and know well. And meanwhile, we are just a year and a half out from the opening of Avatar at Disney's Animal Kingdom and the the belief is look, we made a large expenditure of that park and yes, this is something, you know, that definitely would help make this park more kid-friendly, but somewhere out there lying in the bushes. They haven't officially announced it yet, but there's a Zootopia 2 coming, Uh so we'll wait to bring it stateside with Zootopia 2. But let's talk uh, just quickly about the land. Basically, it's going to be one major attraction. In fact, if you, you look at the concept art, you can see the show building. You're basically going to enter through Zootopia Police Headquarters. And in fact, Mm -hmm. to hide the show building, which is supposedly going to be of size, this is going to be the largest use of forced perspective in the history of Disney theme parks.
0: I saw that. I saw that in the concept art. That was the immediate thing that jumped out to me. That like, Like, wow, from a ground level, this is a lot of forced perspective. And I was trying to figure out Whether that was just because of uh, the relative scarcity of real estate in Shanghai, or were they they just trying to cover up the fact that it was one ride?
1: It's actually, from what I understand, right now it's one ride, but there is talk of creating an expansion pad for what they call a flat ride, which could be a spinner. Mm. They want to be ready, should this area be as popular as they believe it is, to at least create a blow-off spot. But again, if you saw what Disney did with Be Our Guest, with the Beast Castle on top of the building there, that's what they're going to be doing with downtown Zootopia. You're going to see all of the towers from Zootopia done in forced perspective. But again, you're only going to be able to get to sort of into this municipal court area with the police headquarters. And that'll be your entrance. Uh, There's also going to be a shop called Flora and Fauna. If you love Mickey and Minnie ears, get ready for Zootopia, because there's going to be Judy Hopps ears. There's going to be Nick ears. There's going to be Gazelle, the Shakira character. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: all kinds of different ears. And
1: for me, genuinely exciting, the fat cheetah character, Clawhauser. You know, they're going to be (laughs) Clawhauser ears. So, you know, can't wait for that. As for the ride system itself, I have been told what Disney did is they reached deep down into the files and the Toontown transit system that was originally going to be built. At Disney's Hollywood Studios, as part of Roger Rabbit's Hollywood land.
0: What makes that one different?
1: It's a next generation motion based simulator in that you're not just looking out to the windshield, you also have flat panel screens. To you, the left and your right, because at the window you're on a bus. Ah, okay. So okay. you have a full show going on all around you as you, you join Nick and Judy. If you remember the end of the first film, Nick and Judy were on patrol and ended up chasing down the sloth who worked at the DMV. You're going to end up in a police chase with Nick and Judy, or at least they're going to be in a police car next to you. So, actually, the joke at Disney right now is that this is basically the fast and the really furry us. <laughs> the fast and the furries? Yeah, we do. <laughs>
0: that's that's uh, very funny. I, I, I hope that's the internal name that they use on that. And I think the uh, the idea of selling, you know, different different animal ears like mouse ears. That's
1: a great merchandising uh, twist on it. That's fantastic. They're just hoping that one of them will hit like the rose gold ears from a couple of years ago. Exactly. Fast and the
0: Furious. Furious. I love it. I love it. All right, Jim, speaking of archives, after the commercial break, you and I are going to talk about some stuff that we've found in the archives, along with our history of Tomorrowland 1998 in Disneyland. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll do that. All right, Jim, last time uh, on the show, you had talked about some of the history of the uh, 1998 Tomorrowland and how it had come about. And we had left it right before Walt had passed. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about all of the things that Walt wanted to do with Tomorrowland. Where do you want to pick that up?
1: There was this weird little moment in time in the fall of 1967 where the new Tomorrowland had just opened. the, The world on the move. But there was this weird window of time where there were two attractions that were sponsored by Monsanto. There was the, what is it, the House of the Future, right. which actually hung in the park till December that year. But then there was also the Adventures Through Inner Space.
0: Right. Two things, yeah. Yeah.
1: So just recently, though, you had somebody actually in the Really For Real Monsanto archive. Is that correct? Or?
0: It's true. So, uh, so a friend of the show uh, was, uh, was in the Monsanto archives in St. Louis and was able to provide some information on some Monsanto slash Disney documents that they had there. So I want to do, we'll probably have enough material to easily to do an entire show on it. Mm -hmm. So I want to do an entire show. We also need to make sure that Monsanto is okay with us talking about the archive material. Mm -hmm. But I I do have one interesting story that that I hadn't heard before. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know if you have or not, but apparently back in 67, when it was time to demolish the house of the future, which had run for 10 years, Disney had allocated one full day, when the park was closed, to bring the structure down. But even though the house had been outside for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, exposed to the sun, the rain, and millions of tourists, it actually didn't go down without a fight. Here's how, here's how Monsanto described it in their documentation. The wreckers hadn't reckoned with the toughness of the material. What would have been a normal day's work lengthened into two weeks as baffled workmen tried <laughs> headache balls, torches, chainsaws, jackhammers, shovels, and virtually every tool in their armament to no avail. The tough plastic shell wouldn't give in. Eventually, uh, choker cables were used literally to squeeze the big plastic modules into pieces small enough to be trucked away. Attempting to uh, remove the house from its concrete pad, the wreckers found that the half-inch steel anchor bolts broke before the glass fiber-reinforced polyester material did. The 10-year-old home of the future, they said, wasn't ready to give up. So here's here's a great story. The workmen bring in their trucks and everything to do it. the uh, The three thousand Paul wrecking ball that they use, which normally demolishes brick and mortar things mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly, it actually just bounced off against off against the house in the future, which was like the workers apparently had never seen that before. Like, like there was no Plan B.
1: Oh, that's hilarious.
0: So they the, they next tried to pull the thing off of its foundations. Thinking that it would, you know, fall down on its own, mm-hmm. what ended up happening is that the uh, so they attached a train to a, a a giant crane truck. The crane truck actually tilted over uh, <laughs> instead. So one of the uh, one of the workmen said, "Man, you know, this baby's really built. Where can I get a house like that?" Which I think was kind of funny. <laughs> like like here they are, try ready to, to tear this thing down because it's old, and everyone who's trying to tear it down is like, "I need to buy me one of these things." <laughs> So that's the that's the kind of stuff that's in the archives that I don't think we've uh, we've we've heard that story before.
1: Oh no, no. And when they were trying to do this, it was during that period in Disneyland history where the park was closed on Monday and Tuesdays, so they right. they Yeah, so they think they're going to you know they're going to pop in on, you know, on a Monday, yeah. we'll have it, you know, by by Tuesday morning, we'll be done. Everything will be cleaned out, and two weeks later, they're like, "We don't know what to do, but would like to buy one of these. Just to pivot to the other Monsanto-sponsored exhibit, The Adventures Through Inner Space, the gimmick was that guests would get on board an omnimover and supposedly be shrunk down to the size of the atom, an atom so they could travel into the heart of a snowflake and see yep. water molecules up close. And this attraction was predated by a 20th-century Fox film, Fantastic Voyage, which offered moviegoers the same sort of thrills. And Fantastic Voyage was directed by Richard Fleischer, the same guy who directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for Disney in 1954. When it came time to design the Proteus, the vessel that was going to go into the body of the guy that the whole conceit of the film was built around, Fleischer was like, I worked with this guy, Harper Goff, who designed the Nautilus. And I think he'd do an Oof. amazing job with it. So they actually, you know, he reached out to Disney again and said, can you get me Harper? And so he ends up designing the attraction. And if you know your Disney history and you've seen Fantastic uh-huh. Voyage, and then we jump ahead, say, to 1988 to Body Wars and the Wonders of Life pavilion. Uh, I was wondering when you are gonna get to that. All right, yeah, okay. In a lot of ways, Fantastic Voyage basically was the template for a lot of Disney rides going into the 70s and the 80s, because the conceit of this movie is they get inside of this futuristic ship, and they get shrunk down teeny tiny, and then they get inserted into the the body of, of this comatose guy, and they're supposed to travel to his brain, and use laser pistols to shoot a blood cut out of his brain, but then something goes horribly wrong.
0: <laughs> Every dizzy simulator ride ever no, made. That's exactly, ahead. you know,
1: uh, <laughs> though I found this story this weekend. The brand new issue of Cinefix Magazine, issue number 62, came out and has a mm-hmm. feature story on the making of Aquaman, but they used that as an excuse to double back on the history of 20,000 Leagues. There's this interview that had never been published before with Richard Fleischer looking back at the making of 20,000 Leagues. And so okay. he's talking about going to the Bahamas to shoot the underwater scenes. And Walt, you know, who specifically hired this guy, Walt is really adamant about, no, you're the director. You don't go to the Bahamas and shoot underwater that's dangerous and you have to delegate that and he's and Richard on the other hand was like you know the underwater scenes are, are what are really going to make the movie and I should be there to help sculpt them and shape them and and so they're literally walking around the yacht lot arguing and, and this is from Fleischer himself I remember one day I was walking down the studio street with Walt just the two of us together and we'd gotten through arguing this point again and I'll never mm-hmm. forget that he put his arm around my shoulder and said my boy do you want to know how to make a success in this business? And I said, I certainly do, Walt. He said, well, you do what I do. Let somebody else do all the work, and you take all the credit.
0: <laughs> uh, he's being facetious, of, of course, course, but of I understand course. But I just yeah,
1: I, yeah. I wanted to put that out there. But sliding back <laughs> quick to Tomorrowland here, in the early 1960s, walt disney was all about a hopeful take on the future i mean you know world on the move and you know we were all going to go to you know live in the stars or we had movies like the original planet of the apes where a nuclear holocaust had caused the fall of man and the rise of intelligent apes we had soylent right. green where greenhouse effect had helped trash the planet something like silent running which was out in theaters in march of 72 where you know again in a weird sort of way continued the suddenly green storyline where it was this version of the future where the Earth had gotten so toxic that plants would no longer sure. grow here. So they right. launched these giant geodesic domes out to, into space, which, by the way, Len, if you look really closely at, you know, the, the listen to the land geodesic dome, it's like, I think I know where they got that idea.
0: Is there a rocket underneath this? Yeah. Yeah, but that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, if you think about the 1960s, mm-hmm. it was a lot of, you know, questioning, like, you know, it was a generation who had grown up with both nuclear weapons mm-hmm. as a given and with concern for the environment as a given, right? So the children of the 60s were the first generation that had those things. If you think about it from a movie making perspective, mm-hmm. what could possibly go wrong with those, yep. or what, you know, taken to the logical extremes, what, uh, what happens uh, with those things years from now? I think that's the basis for those movies. Kind of makes sense.
1: Oh, I get that. I get that. But on a parallel track, you have what began to happen with attractions in Tomorrowland and Future World.
0: Right, right. It's not the bright sun. Uh, Disney's got this vision of a. A great big beautiful tomorrow, if you will, whereas uh, popular sentiment was basically uh, dystopian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. There's a mismatch there.
1: The very first attraction that opens at uh, in Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World, and they were really far behind schedule on that one, Len. It just mm-hmm. just like, in fact, what happened back in '55. First attraction, which oddly enough was sponsored by Monsanto, didn't open until November 25th, 1971, and that was uh, Circle Vision 360, the the America the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. But didn't you say that they actually have that film? No, 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 no. Okay, done, right? It's
0: one of those it's one of those things, Jim, you uh, the person who told me that they had it. My next question was, uh, have you seen the movie National Treasure and do you own a tuxedo? <laughs>
1: Okay, <laughs> moving on. Then um, here we go. Okay, oh, we but, go. but yeah, Flight to the Moon is, is sponsored by McDonnell Douglas. If You Had Wings is is Eastern Airlines. And then when you think about Epcot, you know, Future World, we had companies like Exxon, GM, Kraft, Kodak, General Electric, all sponsors of pavilions uh, in Future World. And back in Walt's day, you know, Walt was a strong enough personality. We could go. Well, look, we'll entertain. And we'll get your message in there but we're going to entertain mm-hmm. first i mean what ended up happening is because the executives there were dealing with such a weaker hand it's like okay you'll get across our corporate message and then maybe we'll entertain ah uh, okay all right so you have this going on and for a lot of people a trip to tomorrowland or a trip to the the original version of Upcott's future world was like wow this is a lot of corporate messaging and and at the same time, when they're going to the movies, it's all about Logan's Run or the future where you're 25 years old. Blade Runner. It's trying yep. to kill you. Yeah. yeah, But the one science fiction film that makes a bazillion dollars in the middle of all this has a hopeful view. In fact, it has the word hope right in the middle of its title. It's Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope.
0: Ah, uh, all right, all right. And
1: ironically enough... What Disney does with George Lucas going forward in regard to how it impacts Tomorrowland is both going to save that side of the park and make its future that much more complicated, which we'll get to on another episode.
0: That is a great way to to, to close the show, Jim. that's fantastic. That's a really a great point about the um about the disconnect between what was in popular culture mm. uh, or the mood of popular culture movies uh, and the mood within a Disney theme park, how they're completely disconnected for you know, 10 or 15 years. That's a a great point that I don't think I've uh, I've heard made elsewhere. Good job on that, Jim. I try. All right, folks, that's going to do it for our show today. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who really is more of an audio sensei than, say, a producer. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.